Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you, as always, for listening. And thank you very much for the reception you've given to the last episode. I had anticipated that this new series on Huey Long would become a fan favorite, but I truly had no idea how much people would like it. Last episode has already beaten the record for most downloads within the first month of uploading, previously set by the very first episode of the podcast. So I'd like to thank you all once more for the support you've shown me in these past two weeks, and I encourage you to all keep tuning in, because the best is still yet to come. Anyway, on with the show. In the first episode of our series on Huey Long, we covered the Louisiana politician's early life, from his humble origins in Winfield, Louisiana, up to the election of 1928, when he won the governorship of the state. Despite having spent his late adolescence and early adulthood working as a traveling salesman and later as a lawyer, Huey always knew that politics was his true calling. He first entered the arena of Louisiana politics in 1922, when he ran for and won a position on the state's railroad commission. Huey used his platform as commissioner to win a reputation for himself as a champion of the common people against the large corporate entities that sought to exploit them. Two years later, Huey attempted to leverage these populist credentials into a gubernatorial campaign, and while he did make a valiant effort, his campaign was ultimately outmatched by his opponents in terms of funding and organization. These were mistakes that he would not repeat when he ran for governor once more in 1928. He had spent the interim four years building up a powerful political machine. He won over powerful people, media moguls, state politicians, and wealthy businessmen to his camp. Of course, with the promise that they would be duly compensated with government contracts or offices once he won the governorship. Thanks to the political machine he had built up, and thanks to his broad populist appeal, Huey was able to beat his opponents who were favored by Louisiana's conservative political establishment. It is worth noting, of course, that Huey's election caused a realignment of the state's political scene. Louisiana's politics were fundamentally divided between the French Catholic South and the Anglo-Saxon Protestant North. But, in the 1928 election, Huey had won majorities in both regions, something unprecedented in Louisiana politics. The political battle lines were now drawn between those who supported Huey and his progressive agenda, and those who opposed him and favored the status quo. For simplicity's sake, I will be referring to the former group as the Prolongs, and to the latter as the Anti-Longs. Before he was even inaugurated, Huey was already making moves to establish his dominance over the state government. In mid-February 1928, still three months before he took the oath as governor, the Central Committee of the state's Democratic Party convened to select delegates to attend the Democratic National Convention. Traditionally, this process was dominated by the old regulars, the political elites of Louisiana who had been the sole brokers of political power in the state prior to Huey's election. Instead of leaving this responsibility to his political opponents, however, Huey had his own conference, and nominated his own delegates to attend the DNC. A debacle ensued when the two separate Louisiana delegations arrived in Houston for the convention. They both argued their cases before the Credentials Committee, which ultimately decided in favor of seating the prolonged delegation. This coup was Huey's opening salvo in a war with the anti-long forces that would dominate his tenure as governor. It was a message to the state's political establishment that Huey, unlike previous governors, would not merely accede to their whims. One week before his inauguration, the newly elected state legislature began their regular session. 
Huey knew that he had to move quickly in order to establish some degree of control over the legislature in order to enact his agenda. Only 18 of 100 representatives and 9 of 39 senators were outwardly pro-long, while a similar number of representatives and senators were avowedly anti-long. The vast majority of the state legislature was, as of yet, undecided on the matter. Huey spent the weeks leading up to the opening of the legislative session working tirelessly behind the scenes to win over the undecided. His methods were much the same as those he had used to win over the financial backers who bankrolled his campaign for governor. He promised positions in the bureaucracy, lucrative government contracts, and other things of that nature. He also worked to maneuver his own supporters into leadership positions within the legislature. Here, Huey did not have to resort to bribery. The governor traditionally had the power to essentially appoint these positions directly. Although the members of each body had to vote to confirm the governor's nominations, this was merely a formality. For the president pro tem of the Senate, Huey decided on Philip H. Gilbert, and for the Speaker of the House, he nominated John B. Fournay. Both of Huey's nominees were confirmed by a rather wide margin. The next step for Huey was to reorganize the various congressional committees and government offices. Under the pretext of cutting out corruption, Huey gutted government bodies such as the Highway Commission, ousting the decades-long occupants of these offices and replacing them with men that he knew would be loyal to him. Here and there, Huey was met with opposition from those career bureaucrats whom he was relieving of their occupations. Two such cases had to do with two different government agencies, the Board of Health and the Conservation Committee, headed by Dr. Oscar Dowling and Dr. Valentine Erion, respectively. When Huey accused these two men of corruption and demanded that they step down immediately, they refused. So Huey outmaneuvered them. He saw to it that the legislature passed two bills that imposed term limits on these two very specific positions so that their tenure in office was set to end that very year. Dowling eventually relented amid much protesting, but Erion persisted in his resistance. He was finally forced out of office in early 1929, when Huey ordered the National Guard to physically remove him from office. Once men like Dowling and Arion were out, Huey maneuvered his loyalists to take their places. No doubt, a position in Huey Long's bureaucracy was quite desirable. Huey ensured that his people were well-paid and supplied with many other benefits on the side. To Huey, credentials mattered far less than personal loyalty. Most of these positions went to those who had already pledged their fealty to him, or those whose loyalty that he hoped to secure. During his first year in office, Huey placed no less than 23 members of his family on the state's payroll. One anecdote attests that Huey, when leading guests through his offices, would single out a specific employee of his and exclaim, quote, Look at old so-and-so. He's the best employee in the entire state. End quote. When inevitably asked as to what it was exactly the employee did, Huey would reply, quote, Not a goddamn thing. End quote. But an appointment to the Long administration's government was not without strings attached. First of all, Huey had all his state employees pay him back a small percentage of their salary, which went to the war chest that he would use to fund future political campaigns. Huey also had all of his appointees sign undated letters of resignation, so that in the event that he wished to have them removed from office, he could merely date the letter and have it take effect that very day. If a certain employee displeased him, Huey would also often threaten the livelihoods of not only the employees themselves, but their relatives who also drew their salaries from the government. 
Huey Long was officially inaugurated as governor of Louisiana on May 21st, 1928, with all the pomp and circumstance that traditionally was associated with such an event. There was a parade in the morning, the ceremony itself was at midday, and concerts and other festivities were in the afternoon, with an inaugural ball taking place that evening. That day, the air of a Wynn County carnival took over the state capital of Baton Rouge, but despite the seemingly warm reception he had received on Inauguration Day, Huey never became particularly endeared to the city of Baton Rouge. He ridiculed its inhabitants as, quote, a bunch of bridge clovers, stuffed shirt Episcopalians, and pie-eating bureaucrats, end quote. In particular, Huey disliked the official residence provided to him by the state, the governor's mansion. The ever-progressive Huey had never been a fan of the antique, and the governor's mansion, which was a plantation-style residence built by slave labor in the 1850s, was perfectly representative of everything Huey had despised about the old political order. Moreover, the building was inconveniently located and insecure. Huey naturally feared the possibility of an assassination attempt. So, following his inauguration, Huey had his family, which at this point not only consisted of his wife Rose, but of their three children, Rose, Russell, and Palmer, moved into the Heidelberg Hotel, one of the city's best hotels, which was right across the street from the state capital. Eventually, Rose and the children moved back to Shreveport. Huey ordered a thorough inspection of the old governor's residence, and the conclusions were drawn that the building was in a generally dilapidated condition infested with rats and termites. Huey took out a loan from the state's board of liquidations to finance the demolition of the old residence and the construction of a new one. Huey enlisted the assistance of a gang of convicted criminals to handle the demolition work. It seems that he took some perverse pleasure in the destruction of the old mansion, and he cheered on the workers as they demolished the building. During the course of the demolition, the contents of the mansion, its collection of antique furniture, fine china, and silverware, disappeared into the ether, though it's most likely that Huey had sold it off on the black market. It was in these heady early days of his administration that Huey had acquired his iconic nickname, the Kingfish. While consorting with friends and allies in his suite in the Heidelberg Hotel in Baton Rouge, Huey and company often liked to listen to the popular radio program Amos and Andy. Huey adopted the Kingfish moniker from a character on the show. Whether he chose the name himself or one of his cronies chose it for him, Huey liked the name and took it on as his own. For some reason or other, the name ended up sticking, not only amongst his inner circle, but with the public at large. It was to the point that Huey, later on in his career, would answer phone calls simply by saying, quote, this is the kingfish speaking, end quote. Without fail, the person on the other end of the line knew exactly to whom they were speaking. From the very day that he entered office, Governor Long demonstrated to all that he would not act as a doormat as his predecessors had. He actively interfered in legislative affairs, ignoring or entirely rewriting rules in order to enact his agenda. Of this, Huey once said, quote, I'd rather violate every one of the damned conventions and see my bills passed, rather than sit in my office all nice and proper and watch them die. End quote. Huey was a frequent sight on the floor of the state congress, often appearing there unannounced, storming up and down the aisles and cajoling legislators to vote a certain way on such and such a bill. Huey's flagrant disregard was a source of outrage for his political opponents. Once, when he barged into a House committee meeting, as he did so frequently, a disgruntled representative shoved in the governor's face a copy of the state constitution, exclaiming, quote, Perhaps you've heard of this document, end quote. 
Taking the paper in hand and reading its title, Huey quickly threw it to the ground and stepped on it, proclaiming, quote, I am the Constitution just now, end quote. Once Huey had cemented his control over the state's legislature and the bureaucracy, he then began to make moves to enact his political agenda. Of all the campaign promises that he had made over the last year, the two most popular proposals were the revamping of the state's road system and the free textbooks for school children program. One of the most frequent criticisms of Huey by his more conservative opponents was that he would not be able to finance all of these ambitious plans without leading the state into fiscal ruin. However, Huey already had a solution in mind. He proposed a new severance tax. A severance tax, as explained in the last episode, is a tax levied on the extraction of natural resources. Huey's predecessor, Governor John Parker, had enacted the first such tax in the history of the state, but Huey felt that he did not go nearly far enough. Whereas the severance tax enacted by Governor Parker had been based on percentages, Huey's new tax was to be based on the total quantity of resources extracted i.e. X amount of cents per barrel of oil, per thousand feet of lumber, and so on and so forth. The new severance tax was hotly debated in the halls of Congress through the summer of 1928, and eventually, the Standard Oil Company, which had an effective monopoly on the extraction of oil in the state of Louisiana, filed a lawsuit challenging the legality of the new proposed tax. The tax could not be collected until the tax was found to be constitutional, and with the school year rapidly approaching, Huey was determined to make good on his promise to provide the textbooks to all the state's children at government expense. Through some finagling, he managed to secure a loan of $500,000 to pay for the textbooks. With this money, Huey had over 600,000 textbooks printed and distributed to students throughout the state. The free textbook program enabled more than 15,000 more pupils to attend school in the first year alone. By the end of the year 1928, Huey could look on his achievements with some degree of pride. He had established his control over the state's mechanism of political power, and he had begun to enact his progressive agenda. But not all was well within the long camp. His severance tax was still held up in the court, and could not yet be levied. But Huey still needed money to fund his grand projects. On March 18, 1929, Huey called a special session of the state legislature to authorize him to raise more funds. Huey was rather confident in his control of the legislative process. He bragged that he, quote, held the legislature like a deck of cards in his hands, end quote. But when Huey revealed the specific cause for calling this session, the whole state erupted in controversy. What Huey was proposing was an occupational license tax on oil. Unlike the severance tax, which was levied upon the extraction of oil, this new tax was to be levied upon the completion of the refining process, at a rate of $0.05 cents per barrel of oil. Huey estimated that the tax would bring in $2 million per year for the state. At this time, the petroleum sector was the largest portion of the state economy. Businessmen across the state had a vested interest in its continued prosperity. Even ordinary people recognized the importance of the petroleum industry to the state's economy. The Standard Oil Company was the single largest employer in the city of Baton Rouge, its refinery there employed 8,000 of the city's population of 26,000. The proposed tax would hit the petroleum industry hard. Standard Oil spokesmen intimated that, should the tax be passed, they might have to shut down the Baton Rouge refinery and move operations to a different state. Huey's proposal was immediately and widely unpopular. Many at the time suggested that this thinly-veiled attack on Standard Oil was the result of Huey's personal enmity towards the company. 
Indeed, Huey did have some very personal reasons to wish revenge upon the Standard Oil Company. Back when he was a small-town lawyer, Huey had invested over $1,000 of his own money in a local oil rig. Although the rig successfully struck oil, the venture failed when Standard Oil, the only entity in the state with the facilities to refine the crude oil, refused to purchase from local sellers, opting instead to import crude oil from Mexico at a cheaper rate. Thus began a long and personal crusade against the Standard Oil Company. To Huey, Standard Oil had come to represent the purest form of evil, so much so that he frequently compared them to the Ku Klux Klan. Despite the fact that Standard Oil did everything in their power to exploit the common man, Huey must have known that this proposed tax would be somewhat unpopular, and would be met with some degree of opposition. As it would turn out, he greatly underestimated how popular it would be, and to what lengths his enemies would go to oppose it. Even some of his closest allies begged him to reconsider what he was doing, but he went ahead, undaunted. Standard Oil naturally led the charge against the proposed tax. While many legislators opposed the tax on the basis that they simply believed it to be bad policy, some others needed a bit more convincing. The president of Standard Oil's Louisiana branch, Daniel Weller, personally traveled from the company headquarters in New York down to Baton Rouge. Muller's agents arranged secret meetings with state legislators and offered them handsome bribes to oppose the tax. As one state senator later recalled, quote, The money they spent was terrific. You could pick up fifteen or $20,000 any evening back then. End quote. Huey himself charged, in his own words, that Standard Oil had, quote, brought enough money to burn a wet mule. End quote. Huey failed to secure a two-thirds majority vote on the first day of the session. The political fallout began almost immediately afterwards. As Huey frantically paced up and down the aisles of the Senate chamber, haranguing the senators to vote his way, an anti-long senator took to the floor and called for the immediate enforcement of the rule that prohibited unauthorized visitors in the Senate chamber. The vote passed, and the governor was escorted from the room by the sergeant-at-arms. Huey's fiercest critic on the Senate floor was none other than his own lieutenant governor, Paul Sear. Huey and Sear had never been particularly fond of one another. Huey had chosen Sear as his running mate in a calculated move to garner greater support in southern Louisiana. They maintained a cordial, working relationship throughout the 1928 campaign, but once they got into office, Huey decided that he no longer had any need of Sear, and refused to endorse him for the governorship in 1932, as he had intimated that he would. The final, irreconcilable break between the two men occurred in December 1928, as a result of a controversial murder trial. In July, a man named Thomas Dreyer murdered another man named James LaBeouf. In the subsequent trial, it was revealed that Dreyer had been carrying on an affair with LaBeouf's wife, Ada, and that the two had conspired to murder her husband. The court found the couple guilty and sentenced them to hang. They appealed the sentence to the state Supreme Court, but were denied clemency. In a last-ditch effort, Dreyer reached out to Lieutenant Governor Sear, whom he had a personal acquaintance with, in the hopes that Sear would be able to convince Governor Long to pardon the two. Huey, who was personally appalled at the couple's crimes, ignored Sear's plea and signed off on the execution warrant. Thomas Dreyer and Etta LaBeouf were executed by hanging on February 1st, 1929, and their deaths thoroughly destroyed the relationship between Huey and his lieutenant governor. From that time onward, the two never spoke a friendly word to one another. The day following Huey's proposal of the new tax, Lieutenant Governor Sear took to the Senate floor and gave a fiery speech, denouncing Huey as, quote, the worst political tyrant to ever rule this state, end quote. 
He accused Huey of corruption. He asserted that Huey had secret dealings with rival oil companies in order to reap a profit at Standard Oil's expense. The following day, the Baton Rouge State Times, a publication that had remained hitherto neutral in political affairs, struck out at the governor with a bombastic front-page editorial. Quote, Years of planning and building and hoping on the part of a far-sighted citizenry have suddenly been jeopardized by the whims of a governor thrown by chance into a position where he can exercise that whim to the detriment of an industry he conceives to be antagonistic to him. End quote. The article ended by exhorting, quote, every man who has a payroll, every clear-thinking worker who values his Saturday pay envelope, and every public servant who can see further than the end of Governor Long's big stick, end quote, to oppose the tax. In a heated conversation with one of the junior editors at the State Times, Huey threatened to, quote, publish a list of the names of people who are fighting me who have relatives in the insane asylum, end quote. This thinly veiled threat was directed at the owner of the State Times, Charles Manship, whose brother, Douglas, was a patient at the East Louisiana Hospital for Mental Patients. When Manship received this threat, he published an editorial the next day, emblazoned with the headline, quote, This, gentlemen, is how your governor fights, end quote. Manship did admit that his brother was indeed a mental patient, but that he was being treated for psychological damage and that he had sustained during his time fighting in the First World War. When Manship accused Huey of cowardice for not fighting in the war himself despite being of age to enlist, Huey doubled down, quote, They say that I made a terrible offense because they say the insanity of this young man is due to shell shock in the World War. That ain't so. It's due to venereal disease. The record shows this clearly. Whoever heard of shell shock causing syphilis? End quote. By the end of the week, talk of possible impeachment was in the air. Newspapers were openly calling for a criminal investigation into Huey's conduct, and, if necessary, for his removal from office. By this juncture, Huey realized that it was nearly impossible for him to pass the tax in either chamber of the legislature. He ordered his loyalists in the House of Representatives to vote to adjourn the session at their first opportunity. That way, with the House adjourned, impeachment charges could not be brought against the governor until the body convened again, giving Huey enough time to devise a strategy. Tensions were high on the evening of Monday, March 25th, as the House convened. Huey had issued very specific instructions to his followers. One of them was to motion the adjournment of the House, and, with a very slim majority, Huey's followers would vote yes, and the session would be over mere minutes after it had begun. At first, all seemed to be going according to plan. Speaker of the House, John Fournay, a long loyalist, called the session to order. But no sooner had roll call ended, an anti-long representative named Cecil Morgan arose to his feet and leveled an incredible charge against the governor. According to an affidavit written by one of Huey's former bodyguards, Huey had offered money and legal immunity to the man if he were to assassinate Representative J.Y. Sanders Jr. Sanders was a virulent opponent of Huey and the son of the former governor with whom Huey had physically fought in a hotel lobby a year prior. Morgan demanded that a committee be formed immediately to investigate these charges. Speaker Fournay ordered Morgan to take his seat and motion for adjournment. As the sergeant-at-arms approached Morgan to place him back in his seat, a dozen anti-long representatives formed a perimeter around him and blocked the sergeant-at-arms' path, while Morgan, from behind this wall of bodies, screamed about the indignity and insisted that he would not be silenced, Fournay called for the vote. The representatives rushed back to their seats to vote on their machines. All told, 67 voted in favor of adjournment and 13 against. 
With that, Fournay declared the matter to be over and exited the chamber. The anti-Long representatives suddenly began to yell that the vote had been rigged. Fournay returned to the chamber and slammed his gavel furiously against the podium, demanding order. While other Long representatives took defensive positions, one anti-Long representative, Clinton Says, made an attempt to capture the speaker's podium. Blocking his egress was pro-Long representative Loris Wimberly, who punched the man in the forehead. The diamond ring he had on his finger caused a wound to appear on Say's head. A few drops of blood dropped to the house floor. Although the wound was quite minor, enough blood had been drawn that this day was henceforth known in Louisiana as Bloody Monday. Immediately after Say's was struck, a melee erupted between pro- and anti-long representatives throughout the entire chamber. Representatives punched and kicked and wrestled with one another, while inkwells, law books, and other projectiles flew across the room. The brawl went on for some time before Mason Spencer, an anti-long representative, stood atop the press table and bellowed out a call for order. Suddenly and miraculously, the chamber fell silent. Spencer then took it upon himself to retally the adjournment by oral roll call. He was pleased to announce that the results were 97 against adjournment and 9 in favor. By this point, tempers had cooled, although all parties involved recognized that they would get no more work done that night. So they voted to reconvene at 11 o'clock the following morning. As soon as they left the House floor, the members of the anti-Long faction known as the Dynamite Squad immediately got to work drafting articles of impeachment for Governor Long. The Dynamite Squad was made up of Huey's most powerful and vociferous opponents, all of whom hailed from the old aristocratic families and were on very friendly terms with the old regulars. The members of the Dynamite Squad stayed up all night furiously working on the articles of impeachment. In the end, they devised 19 specific charges against the governor. The atmosphere in the House chamber the next morning was quiet but tense. Many of the legislators carried loaded handguns at their sides. Speaker Fournay formally apologized for his role in the last night's pandemonium and explained that the voting machines had not, in fact, been rigged as the anti-longs thought, but rather the miscount was due to a technical error. With those formalities out of the way, a member of the Dynamite Squad took to the floor and read aloud their resolution of impeachment. Quote, Whereas Huey P. Long, governor of the state of Louisiana, has been guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors in office, incompetency, corruption, favoritism, oppression in office, and gross misconduct, be it resolved that Huey P. Long be impeached for said offenses and tried before the Senate. End quote. Each of the 19 charges were then read aloud. They ranged from more serious charges, such as his misuses of state funds, bribery of legislators, and unduly influencing the judiciary, to more frivolous ones, such as fondling a stripper in a New Orleans nightclub and blasphemy. If the more serious charges were proved, his removal from office would be clearly justifiable. The reaction of the mostly conservative city of Baton Rouge to the news of the impeachment was one of elation. A mass rally was held that very evening to celebrate. There were some 6,000 people in attendance, some of whom were old regulars, who had traveled up from New Orleans as soon as they heard the news. Music was provided by Standard Oil's company band, who made very little effort to hide their affiliation with the company. Anti-Long speakers gave fiery speeches denouncing the tyrant Huey Long. Many of these speakers were people who had opposed Huey from the very beginning, but a concerning number of them were former Long loyalists, who had turned on him after he proposed the oil tax. All the while, Huey watched these developments unfold from his unofficial headquarters in the Heidelberg Hotel. The events of the past two days had come as a complete shock to him. They had clearly demonstrated that he was not as in control of the situation as he had initially believed, 
and now he was faced with the prospect of losing everything. This sudden and drastic reversal of fortune had a profound effect on Huey. For the first two days after the announcement of the impeachment proceedings, Huey fell into a state of sort of mental paralysis. He became extremely anxious and depressed. He slept very little, pacing frantically around the hotel suite, half-dressed with a loaded pistol in his back pocket. Huey's brother Julius, who had come to Baton Rouge from Shreveport in order to offer his legal services in his brother's defense, reported that he found Huey lying on a bed, sobbing uncontrollably. It was to the point that Julius feared that Huey might commit suicide. But Huey, a man of boundless energy, would not remain in the state for long. After a couple of days, he regained his fortitude and immediately began to plan his counterattack. Huey took up the oldest and most reliable weapon in his political arsenal, the circular. He dictated the text of these circulars to his secretary, who would then send it to a printing plant to be copied and printed en masse. Throughout the impeachment process, which lasted approximately one and a half months, over 900,000 circulars were printed. Huey previously relied on the Postal Service to distribute his literature, but this would simply not do. Time was of the essence. Instead, he utilized more legally questionable methods. He handed the circulars off to government employees, typically police driving unmarked government-owned vehicles, who transported them to some community leader or other, who would then distribute the literature to the people. This system worked with remarkable efficiency and rapidity. Before long, the countryside was absolutely inundated with Huey's literature. He published the first of these circulars on March 28th, a mere three days after Bloody Monday. Its headline was emblazoned, quote, The same fight again, the Standard Oil Company versus Huey P. Long, end quote. The first few lines of it read, quote, I had rather go down to a thousand impeachments than to admit that I am the governor of a state that does not dare call the Standard Oil Company to account, so that we can educate our children and care for the destitute, the sick, and afflicted. If this state is to be ruled by the power of the money of this corporation, then I am simply too weak to be its governor. End quote. A week later, Huey, not to be outdone by his opponents in the arena of spectacle, held his own rally at the same location his opponents had held theirs. His crowd, which dwarfed that of his opponents, consisted of a curious mixture of state employees who had been ordered to attend by Huey, and genuine working-class supporters from across the state. A series of prolonged speakers took to the rostrum before Huey himself delivered a two-hour-long speech that those in attendance claimed was his greatest piece of political theater to date. Huey railed against the Standard Oil Company, accusing them of plotting to overthrow him, the humble champion of the people, and he exhorted his supporters to rally to his defense. He ended the speech powerfully by quoting from the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley, quote, I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my own soul, end quote. The impeachment hearings were set to begin on April 3rd. Huey had spent the interim period building up an expert legal team for his defense. The team included some of the sharpest legal minds in the entire state, including Huey's brother Julius. Across all accounts, a picture of the impeachment trial of Huey Long emerges as a scandalous, dramatic, and at times humorous affair. Huey's opponents chose to focus on the charge that Huey had bribed members of the legislature. Numerous senators and representatives testified that Huey had offered them some sort of incentive, monetary or otherwise, to vote in a certain way on a certain bill. The highlight of these testimonies came when a former prolonged senator asserted that he had once heard Huey bragging about buying another senator as one would a sack of potatoes. Despite the seemingly damning nature of such accusations, this sort of corruption was par for the course in Louisiana politics. 
if Huey was guilty of a crime for engaging in this sort of behavior, then every other governor in the state's entire history would be equally guilty. Recognizing the implications of this, the prosecution backed away from the bribery charges and looked for something else that might stick. They eventually settled on Huey's alleged misuse of state funds. Specifically, they were inquiring as to a conference that Huey had held for a group of regional governors the previous year. For this, they solicited the testimony of one Seymour Weiss, Huey's unofficial personal treasurer. Weiss, the son of a Jewish shopkeeper from a small town in the southwestern corner of the state, had met Huey in 1927, when he had set up his campaign quarters at the hotel that Weiss was then the manager of. The two quickly struck up a friendship, with Weiss becoming the man who handled all of Huey's financial transactions. He demonstrated his loyalty to Huey when he was called up to the stand. Time and again, he was grilled by the prosecution as to whether or not Huey had allocated state funds to purchase liquor, prostitutes, and other sorts of vices for his guests. Time and again, Weiss refused to divulge any incriminating details. Large crowds turned up to the state capitol each day to watch the impeachment proceedings. By far, the days that drew the largest audiences were the ones in which Huey's personal conduct was being called into question. One line of inquiry was directed at Huey's use of vulgar language towards both government officials and private citizens alike. The prosecution had no shortage of witnesses who could attest to Huey's extensive use of explicit language behind closed doors, and while I will not repeat some examples of his colorful vocabulary, it should suffice to say that the gallery erupted in scandalized gasps whenever Huey's statements were repeated for the official record. Realizing that focusing on the profanity charges was not the most productive use of their time, the prosecution moved on once again. This time, the object of their questioning was a wild party at a New Orleans nightclub that Huey had allegedly attended. The prosecution brought one of the hula dancers who was present that night, a woman named Helen Clifford, to the stand, where she testified that Huey had acted frisky that night, but refused to divulge any further details. She later recanted her statement when it was revealed that she had been bribed in exchange for her testimony. The House impeachment hearings ended on April 26th after some three weeks. Of the original 19 charges that were brought against the governor, only eight would be sent along to the Senate for trial. They were as follows. 1. Huey had attempted to bribe newspaper magnate Charles Manship. 2. He had attempted to bribe members of the legislature. 3. He had taken money appropriated for the governor's conference and not properly accounted for it. 4. He had illegally removed an official from a state school. 5. He had spent money allocated for automobile repairs on other expenses. 6. He had purchased a private library with state funds. 7. He had permitted a construction company to build defective roads. And finally, 8. He had forced state employees to sign undated letters of resignation, insulted a college president, appointed a corrupt parole officer, and had generally demonstrated that he was incompetent and temperamentally unfit to hold the office of governor. On one of the final days of the House impeachment hearings, a prolonged representative named George Deleuze Dernier took to the floor to deliver what one author has called, quote, the most ridiculous speech in the history of Louisiana politics, end quote. He began as follows, quote, Bear with me in patience while I say what I have to say. The title of my speech is The Cross of Wood and the Shackles of Paper. Nineteen hundred years ago, there was a cross of wood erected, and a divine creature was nailed to that cross. The divine creature had been relieving the poor and afflicted, and for that he had aroused the opposition of the mighty. 
He was surrounded by a committee of 12. There was a traitor in his ranks. Charges were referred to a judge, and they took this divine creature and crucified him. Today, we have a creature among us who is relieving the sick and destitute. End quote. But at this point, some members of the audience realized exactly where the senator was going with this analogy, and attempted to shout him down with accusations of blasphemy. They warned him not to compare Governor Long with Jesus Christ. The Lesterinier countered that his speech had not mentioned Christ, at least, not explicitly. He was permitted to continue his speech, quote, Today there is a creature relieving the sick and the blind, aiding the lame, and trying to drive illiteracy from the state. He is being shackled with a paper cross. This cross was manufactured, one of the uprights of a saintly piece. The horizontal part of the cross is from the beams of the moon, and this divine creature, by that I mean the creature of today, is being shackled with papers. End quote. Amid renewed cries of blasphemy and sacrilege, Delis Dernier dramatically concluded, quote, Mr. Chairman, take my life, but give me my character. End quote. At this, the senator fainted and collapsed onto the floor, where he laid while the final vote was taken, and where he remained until some friends of his splashed his face with cold water and carried him from the room. On April 27th, the Senate trial officially opened. The House of Representatives had impeached the governor on the aforementioned eight charges, but this did not yet merit a removal from office. The Senate was the body that was capable of convicting an official and removing him from office, and this could only be accomplished by a two-thirds majority vote. The Senate trial began with a rather explosive spectacle. The night after the trial began, anti-Long Senator Harney Bogan and New Orleans businessman and Long ally Robert Maestri were having a conversation in the halls of the Capitol building when Huey's younger brother Earl approached them. Earl was enraged and demanded to know why Maestri was conversing with the enemy. Bogan responded by slapping Earl across the face. A brief and ferocious scuffle ensued wherein Earl inflicted multiple bite wounds on Bogan's face. The damage was so severe that Earl later bragged that he had, quote, tore Bogan to pieces, end quote. When a bemused Huey later learned of this fight later that night, he chuckled and said, quote, I bet Earl bit him, didn't he? Earl always bites, end quote. The stakes for Huey were astronomical, but luckily for him, the Senate trial did not drag on for very long. Only two days after the Senate convened, the president pro tem of the Senate, a long ally named Philip Gilbert, made a sensational announcement. He claimed to possess a document signed by 15 senators that stated that they believed that the impeachment trial was illegal, and thus invalid, and that they would not vote to convict Governor Long, regardless of whatever evidence was presented before them. This document has gone down in the annals of Louisiana history as the Round Robin. From the moment that Huey realized that a trial in the Senate was an inevitability, he and his allies worked overtime to solicit the signatures of these 15 senators by any means necessary. Threats, blackmail, bribes, patronage, whatever else. The Round Robin presented the prosecution with a checkmate, with 15 senators having pledged to not vote to convict the governor under any circumstances, to achieve the two-thirds majority vote necessary to convict was now impossible. Faced with no other option, the Senate voted to adjourn, and thus the impeachment process was ended. The extent to which Huey Long emerged from the impeachment ordeal as a changed man is a matter of debate among historians. Many claim that following impeachment, Huey became increasingly jaded and cynical. He seemed no longer to be the naive optimist that he once was, and his methods became increasingly authoritarian. Others are quick to point out that Huey's authoritarian tendencies 
had already been put on clear display prior to the impeachment, and that impeachment only brought these tendencies to the forefront. In other words, Huey still clung to his ideals, but became more ruthless in enacting his agenda. Whatever the case, a few outward signs would indicate changes in his demeanor, such as the fact that he drastically reduced his circle of confidants, and was rarely seen in public anymore without armed bodyguards at his side. His sister Lottie offered the following assessment, quote, Before he was reasonable, humane, and kind, but the impeachment did something to him. It made him vicious. After that, he fought against his enemies with everything he had, end quote. In Huey's own words, quote, Before, I used to get things done by saying please. That didn't work, and now I'm a dynamiter. I just dynamite him out of my path, end quote. And it is about there that I will leave the narrative for now. Be sure to tune in next time to see the fallout from the impeachment ordeal, as the increasingly authoritarian-oriented Huey continues on his quest for more and more political power and moves to exact revenge on those who had attempted to remove him from office. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else of that nature, you can reach me via email at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you like this show and would like to help support it financially, please consider either subscribing to the show on Patreon or consider purchasing some books from me on eBay. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you again for listening. I'm your host, Moon Connor, signing but there's nothing belonging to others. There's enough for all people to share. When it's sunny June and December too, or in the winter time or spring, there'll be peace without end. Every neighbor a friend with every man a 